Welcome to the American Research Center in Egypt podcast. We bring you the latest findings in Egyptological research and host engaging discussions about fascinating topics in Egyptian cultural heritage. Each of our guests are world-renowned scholars in the fields of Egyptology, Coptic, Islamic, and modern Egyptian history, archaeology, and much more. To suggest a topic for this program, please email us at podcast at rc.org. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find out more about our other programs and activities, including virtual lectures and tours, by visiting our website at rc.org. You can also support our work by joining our mailing list, becoming a member, or donating to support this podcast. This episode will continue our Kingship in Ancient Egypt series with Female Pharaohs Part 2. It will feature Dr. Yasmin Al-Shazli, RC's Deputy Director for Research and Programs, in conversation with our guests. Dr. Maria Mayad of the American University in Cairo, and Dr. Jacqueline Williamson of George Mason University. If you haven't listened to Female Pharaohs Part 1, visit the RC podcast page or on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Let's move to Nefer Neferu Aten, <laughs> who is believed to have succeeded Akhnaten, who may have been preceded by Smenkara. What do we know about this female ruler? Almost nothing. <laughs> Almost nothing at all. I mean, that's the problem. And that's, that's another great example of where we rush in to make a story with, because we have almost no evidence at all. So who, we don't even know who exactly uh, Neferu-Neferuaten was. During the last couple of years of Akhenaten's life, we have this individual called Smenkare who appears very, very suddenly and then disappears just as suddenly. And we don't really know who this individual was. There's a lot of discussion. Was he Akhenaten's brother? Was he, you know, a, a person who is married to Akhenaten's kid, Meritaten? Uh, and so therefore was raised to sort of a co-regency towards the end of Akhenaten's reign. But we do know that Smenkare dies before Akhenaten dies himself. And so Smenkare is literally just this flash in history that then immediately disappears. And so some people, and then this individual called King Neferu Neferuaten appears equally just as suddenly. And so a lot of people said, oh, well, maybe maybe that's the throne name of Smenkare, or maybe that was an addition, because we all know that kings had multiple different mm -hmm. regnal names. But the thing that's quite interesting is that Mark the Bold especially really demonstrated that a lot of the inscriptions of Neferu-Neferuaten pretty much prove that King Neferu-Neferuaten was indeed female. And so therefore, since we're, there's no question that Smenkare was male, that takes Smenkare out of the running. That, that, so it seems like King Neferu-Neferuaten was an individual. But then who is it, right? And so people have said, well, is it maybe Meritaten, right? Akhenaten's daughter. Maybe she took that name uh, and succeeded her father to the throne as a, as a female ruler. However, there's a more simple explanation. Uh, Nefertiti herself, Around uh, when she comes to the throne, uh, around you know when she marries Akhenaten and comes to the throne around year five, calls herself Neferu Neferuaten Nefertiti. 
So that name already exists and it's attached to somebody already. Uh, and so it would make a degree of sense uh, if King Neferu-Neferuaten is indeed King Neferu-Neferuaten-Nefertiti because that name was already attached mm -hmm. to Nefertiti anyway. Um, we have no definitive proof <laughs> at <Yeah>. all. <laughs> Uh, the thing that's, uh, but one of the, so one of the reasons that we have been hesitant about saying whether or not that's Nefertiti is that previously, around year 12, we thought that Nefertiti disappeared. She stopped appearing in all the records, where is, what happened to Nefertiti? And so, of course, again, we rushed to fill this gap saying, oh, uh, maybe she, angered Akhenaten and he discarded her or maybe she died or whatever. But because of the amazing work of Athena van der Peer, uh, she found a wonderful inscription and a quarry um, about, well, gosh, almost 10 years ago, I guess now. Wow, how fast time flies. Um, that uh, proves that Nefertiti was still alive and calling herself Queen Nefertiti in Akhenaten's year 16. So she was still alive and still calling herself queen, which means that she wasn't in a co-regency, she hadn't yet identified as king, all of this indicating that if there is indeed a king Neferu-Neferuaten, that king Neferu-Neferuaten, if it was Nefertiti, came to the throne after Akhenaten's death and identified herself as king later on, right? So. But then again, she also only rules for about three seconds uh, because she disappears as soon as they relocate to Thebes. We actually do have an inscription from TT 139 uh, of Pare, uh, a brief inscription of, Nef of King Neferu-Neferuaten there. So it's clear that she relocated to Thebes along with, uh, or Luxor, along with the rest of the royal court, uh, but then she disappears. So, you know, what, what happens, we have no idea. But so we have this brief Amarna King, just this flash in the pan, possibly Nefertiti. But again, we just we just don't know. We can't say too much more about that. We, and we really we really can't say it. it there's so many maybes around mm -hmm. it that there's no way to pin that identity. You know, like whereas with Tutankhamun, on the other hand, there is enough evidence that pretty much that I would feel confident about labeling him as Akhenaten's son, mm -hmm. uh, because there is enough kind of conclusive evidence that indicates that. But there's so much conflicting evidence about the identity of King Neferu-Neferuaten that I, I feel reluctant to attach it definitively to Nefertiti. But due to Athena van der Peer's amazing discovery, it makes it far more likely. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned Tutankhamun because that leads us <laughs> to our next question. <laughs> What evidence do we have for the reuse of some of Nefer-Neferu-Aten's Nefer burial goods by Tutankhamun? It's a, and it's why a, do you believe these objects were reused? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. So I think that there are a number of different monu uh, objects from Tutankhamun's tomb that are clearly Amarna, right? So there's mm -hmm. that, his throne, of course, the famous throne that actually has the Aten and, you know, all the, anyway, so it's, it's very clear that this is an Aten, that this is an Amarna period king. And it's obviously been altered, uh, you know, so the names have been altered, some of the members of the throne have been altered, all of this. 
And so it's clear that a lot of these have been specially modified uh, to go into Tutankhamun's tomb, which makes a lot of sense since he died sort of unexpectedly and quite young. And in order to be able to adequately equip a tomb like that, you would want to be able to, you know, again, you, you need kind of a lot of stuff very, very quickly. And the idea, as we see with Tutankhamun abandoning his birth name of Tutankhaten, the, there may have been a press to say, wait a minute, we've got all of these Amarna period Atenist burial materials. Let's just finagle them and reuse them. And because that way it's sort of nobody, I don't think anybody wanted them for one thing, you know, and so he's kind of reusing and reuse and recycle, right? Um, yeah. he's using and recycling these objects in order to sort of fill out his burial uh, material. So it's an interesting, it is a really interesting question. Okay, Mariam, I want to ask you a few questions now about the God's wives of Amun. The position of God's wife of Amun was another very powerful position held by some women in ancient Egypt. Can you please talk to us about this position and why it was so powerful? Uh, well, gladly, thank you. <laughs> um, well, I think, let me start at the, very, at the very beginning, again, back to the early 18th dynasty. The title first appears in its complete form at the very first, earliest reign of the uh, 18th dynasty, when Ahmosa, the person responsible for reunifying Egypt for expelling the Hyksos, gives it to his wife, chief royal wife, Ahmos Nefertari. And with the title, he also endows the office with a vast estate, enormous estate. At the end of the decree for establishing that estate, he says very clearly that no future king shall be able ever to take away the property of the god's wives. So it's a special endowment independent of the royal household that is established for his chief royal wife. Now, people can speculate why he did that, whether it's a religious move uh, to show his devotion to the god Amun, whether it's a political move as part of a larger policy uh, through which he placed key family members in key positions. So now the chief royal wife is well embedded in the Amun hierarchy. At the same time, he invents a position called the king's son of Kush. King's son, by the way, is just a way of saying prince. So the prince of Kush is actually given to his son and he's placed in charge of Nubia, similar to like the Prince of Wales. In, in later parts of the, of the new kingdom, that position ceased to be um, uh, held by an actual prince or, you know, we don't know, but other officials may have held it. And the same goes for the God's wife of Amun. It started as a, a royal household position. Uh, we discussed how Hatshepsut may have used it um, as possibly a springboard from which to gain power. But again, I hesitate to say that because as the assumption is springboard, she's assuming something she should not have assumed. But what we do know is that Hatshepsut asking uh, with the uh, epithet Remenet Iman, the one who's united with Amun, which she acquires when she becomes king, and when that epithet is enclosed in her royal cartouche, we have several examples where that royal cartouche is preceded by the title God's Wife. A good example is a kohal jar from the Metropolitan Museum. So even after becoming the chief royal wife, or in other words, the queen, after becoming a regent, after becoming 
uh, Nesubiti or a king of Upper and Lower Egypt, she would still use the title of God's wife of Amun. And that's very intriguing and it and deserves more study. My own work, uh, you fast forward about four or 500 years um, and a time, another intermediate period, a time when Egypt was politically fragmented and that office is resurrected, uh, dusted off. And instead of a chief royal wife holding it, now it's being given to a daughter of the king. Now Hatshepsut was a daughter of the king too, but I think it's not quite clear when she became a God's wife, but the assumption is she became a God's wife after, as part of her being a chief royal wife, um, as was the custom in the early 18th dynasty. So in the third intermediate period, Osarkan III, uh, who's the ruler of the 23rd dynasty, gives it to his daughter, Shefet, they're Libyan. We assume that they had um, a residence somewhere in the Delta, possibly Tanis. And he sends this daughter to Thebes. Now, in the 90s, there was this idea that uh, the 23rd dynasty is actually a Theban dynasty, and that theory was based on one monument only, and it's the chapel of Osiris Hekajet at Karnak. And it's that chapel that actually shows the most number of iconographic scenes of Shepard the I, leading the person who excavated the chapel, Redford, to write in 1973 that the chapel itself was constructed as a monument to celebrate Shepard Weapon being placed into the office as God's wife. In that chapel, Sarkhan appears with his co-regent, Teklath, who had been the high priest of Amun, but had just been elevated to become co-ruler with his father. So the two kings are represented each eight, uh, 12 times in that chapel, and Shepard Wapit is represented 15 different times. So if anything, the one monument for the so-called Theban 23rd dynasty is a monument for the god's wife celebrating, commemorating her investiture into that office. And what we see here is the investiture scenes that we discussed earlier in conjunction with Hatshepsut. So she's being suckled by a goddess mm -hmm. and the milk of a goddess, according to pyramid texts and, and other uh, inscriptions, seem to have imbued the king with his divine aspects. So she's represented three times being suckled with a goddess, including twice on the facade of that Libyan chapel. And then she's being crowned by Amun twice mm -hmm. on the facade as well. But of course, again, when people describe those scenes, Amun is not crowning her, he's adjusting her headgear. <laughs> no, of course, yeah. yes. That's another way of yeah. saying Corona, crown, right? No, yeah. <laughs> not even Tiara, but it, it, they're, they're actually very elaborate crowns that she wears. In one scene when she's being suckled um, in that first room by a goddess, who's probably Hathor, but the headgear is lost, so we're not sure uh, of the identity of the goddess. She's wearing actually two double crowns, uh, the crowns of Akhenor, Egypt, but they're in miniature and they're placed such that they're flipped to face one another. Mm. So she has such elaborate headgear um, that it's a problem for the iconographers working there to actually make sure that they are tracing the, the correct lines. But all these scenes are scenes of legitimation or investiture mm -hmm. uh, with power that is that seems on the surface of it. Uh, to be equal to the kings. Now, these specific scenes are associated with coronation, but some of them are also associated with the Set Festival. Through my work on the God's Wives of Amen, I've come to view the Set Festival not 
as a jubilee celebration, as is commonly said, not as a 30-year celebration, to use the, the Greek term, which is erroneous, but rather as an investiture celebration through which the king became a priest. And mm -hmm. that idea was proposed in 66-68 by Bleeker, but again, it didn't gain traction in Egyptological circles, and people have gone back to this idea of the Set Festival as just a royal festival. But I think it's mainly investing the king with his priestly powers. Mm. Now, Shep and Wepet were was still alive when the Nubians invaded Egypt. Uh, the Nubians, for some reason, immediately recognized the value of these scenes. So instead of erasing these scenes and placing the name of their own appointee to office in her stead, they didn't do that. And instead, when they constructed an additional room um, in that chapel of Osiris Hekajet, a ruler of eternity, they incorporated new scenes that depict Shep and Wepet the first as alive. So she, as a living God's wife, she's presenting Amun with um, Ma'at. She is receiving the Manat necklace from Isis. And immediately underneath in the lower register of that eastern wall of the first room, Aminerdis, the Nubian God's wives, receive, receives lives, receives three keys of life in her hand and uh, uh, life to her nose and from Amun. And behind him, his concert moon is standing and presents her with the set festival symbols, followed by the word for numerous, Aisha. So mm -hmm. it's as if one God's wife uh, sows and the other reaps, one gives and the other takes. Because usually in the presentation of Ma'at, it's a tit for tat between the king and the gods. So the king is presenting Ma'at and in the same scene, he is receiving life. Mm -hmm. With these two God's wives, the sequence, the ritual sequence is divided one gives and the other receives. So I think that the Nubians intentionally kept Shep and Wepet there because they understood the value of the scenes showing her investiture and instead built on her legitimacy to legitimate mm -hmm. their own appointee to office as God's wife. And from that point on, the office really takes off and the second woman to become a God's wife, also Shep and Wepet, so she is the namesake of the Libyan woman, mm -hmm. uh, assumes so many different uh, iconographic scenes that are formerly associated with the king, mm -hmm. um, uh, including actually celebrating the Set Festival in a monument that was dismantled in antiquity and whose blocks were used as filler um, in a ramp leading into the temple of Montu. Mm. But these blocks were recovered uh, during the French excavations of the early 50s and published. And again, you know, a lot of the information is out there, but people are not looking at what's mm -hmm. at everything that's out there. So the God's wives were great. I think in terms of a religious um, power vis-a-vis -vis the, the gods, they seem to be equal to the king. In the chapel of Aminirdis at Medina Tabu, again, we see Shep Muppet II performing various uh, funerary rites for her deceased predecessor, including the driving of the four calves, including the consecration of the marriage chests, which at that point were royal prerogative. They occur maybe on one or two coffins in the 21st dynasty belonging to priests at a time when the priests and the kings shared a lot of things, um, including the throne at times. Mm -hmm. But again, in that instance with the driving of the four calves, when Hatshepsut performs it at the Al-Bahari, she's represented in a male royal kilt, as if she is a masculine king. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas when the god's wife is performing it, she's feminine, curvaceous, mm -hmm. wearing a long dress, wearing the 
a vulture headdress. So there's no denying of femininity in this case, probably because there's no need to deny it. She's not a Horus. Mm-hmm. It's just a very high status priestess, as high in her status, in her priestly status as a king. Mm-hmm. And under the Nubians, that kind of makes sense a little bit because I think of the Nubians as being uh, very much into power sharing. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a brother of the king leading the armies who eventually becomes king, like the Harka. Mm-hmm. And then you have the god's wife taking care of the temple ritual. And you have to wonder, so what does the king do yeah. under the Nubians? Because they were really very much yeah. into delegation. At least that's how I understand happening at the time. Fascinating. You're listening to the official podcast of the American Research Center in Egypt. More information about our operations and programs can be found at rc.org. And if you would like to support the RC podcast, please visit rc.org slash podcast. Now we will go back to our episode, Female Pharaohs Part 2, with Dr. Mary Mayad and Dr. Jacqueline Williamson. Now we're going to move on to a very exciting figure, Cleopatra. So Jackie, do you consider Cleopatra to have been Greek or Egyptian and why? Oh, it's got the can of worms, isn't it, right? So um, Cleopatra, of course, was the last uh, ruler of Egypt and she's Cleopatra VII, you know, one of a long line. And she's a member of the Ptolemaic dynasty. So uh, Alexander the Great, of course, uh, from Hellenistic Egypt, uh, Hellenistic Greece, conquered pretty the majority of the kind of eastern part of the Mediterranean and the known world up to sort of Pakistan, India, and etc. Uh, and when he died, uh, he divided his gigantic empire amongst his generals, and his general Ptolemy is the one who got Egypt thus creating a um, Greek foundation for an Egyptian uh, ruler. Now, the thing is, of course, as we were just talking about, in order to be a legitimate ruler of Egypt, you have to be Horus. And so they would not really have accepted a ruler who claimed power over them unless he ruled according to Egyptian religious and social norms. And so he became a crowned invested, as Mariam uh, points out, king, uh, divine king of Egypt, just thus creating this really interesting hybrid of uh, Egyptian culture with Greek uh, ideas and concepts as well. And so it's this very interesting synthesis of cultures. Um, So, I mean, I guess it depends on, again, I I think that our our tendency is to want to see a black and white identity. You know, are they then Egyptian or are they then Greek? And I think they're both, you know, I I think that they would have themselves identified as both. However, that being said, uh, most of them didn't speak ancient Egyptian. Uh, Most of them couldn't read it. They didn't really interact with their people in the same way a traditional Egyptian king would have done. Uh, And that's one of the things that stands out about Cleopatra is that she really does go out of her way to embrace uh, Egyptian religion. And she does indeed learn uh, the native language of the people that she rules. And uh, she was known to be quite a remarkable linguist. Actually, she could speak apparently, uh, you know, many, many languages and can converse easily in all of them. 
there's a, a, a text that says that she didn't require a diplomatic interpreter when she received foreigners from other lands because she could easily converse with them in any language. So she was obviously a great intellect. Um, she certainly seems to have embraced being Egyptian in many ways. She identified very strongly as both Isis as well as Hathor, particularly Isis. And, uh, you know, so she herself may have self-identified as Egyptian, uh, even if according to sort of our traditional understanding of what makes an ancient Egyptian an ancient Egyptian, she wouldn't quite coincide with that, but it also had been hundreds of years since a traditional Egyptian had been on the throne. So she is, again, this, this sort of, she's the synthesis of what culture was at that moment. Uh, so it's an interesting, it's a really, really interesting question. And I, you know, again, that's, you know, we need to, you know, defer, of course, to Sally Ann Ashton and et cetera, who are doing such great work on, on uh, her and her reign, Ptolemies as well, in order to really understand them in particular. How did Cleopatra ascend the throne? This is a question that we really have to put in a much broader historic context. Uh, so she's Cleopatra VII uh, and the last ruler of Egypt as an independent nation. Uh, and of course, uh, so we have to really sort of think about what was the identity of the time period that she grew up in. She's a Ptolemy. Uh, the Ptolemaic Empire was created by Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, of course, of Hellenistic Greece, who conquered the majority of the Eastern Mediterranean world. And uh, when he died, he broke his empire up and gave uh, Egypt to his general Ptolemy. And so Ptolemy comes to the throne. He is uh, he marries both Greek as well as Egyptian ideas, and uh, in order to become a valid crowned religious ruler of Egypt. Um, the Ptolemies themselves were in many ways uh, very much like Game of Thrones. They were assassinating each other and uh, there was some incestuous uh, interactions. And so it was a very tumultuous time period. They were, um, so she is in no way dissimilar from everyone who came before her. Uh, and uh, so she actually came to the throne ruling in tandem with her brothers. Uh, and one of her brothers uh, actually assassinated a general uh, who had been defeated by Julius Caesar and then came to Egypt. And so her brother assassinates this, this general whose name is Pompey uh, as a means to gain the favor of Julius Caesar, and he's hoping that Julius Caesar will will place, uh, will 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 smile upon this act of assassination and uh, go on to Cleopatra's brother's side and squeeze Cleopatra out of power, and you know, sort of support her brother, not Cleopatra. But the brother really miscalculates because although Julius Caesar needed to defeat uh, Pompey, he didn't hate him. And so the idea of this general being assassinated actually made him very, very sad. And so Cleopatra meets with Julius Caesar to um, uh, politically kind of negotiate with him about uh, not only the rulership of Egypt, but the status of Egypt itself. And, 
he decides to kind of throw his lot in with Cleopatra. And one of the things I think that we, again, as moderns, whenever we see a woman in power, we automatically assume that there must be a sexual component going on here. Um, but we also need to remember that she was a person in power. It's an entirely legitimate thing for a person in power to approach another person in power to negotiate the political status of their country. This is a completely legit action. Uh, and Julius Caesar, as a, as a uh, foreign dignitary in her country, of course he interacted with Cleopatra. It would be strange if he didn't. Uh, and so Cleopatra demonstrated her ability to rule in a way that eclipsed her brother. And so uh, because of, again, uh, her brother's sort of, uh, you know, betrayal of Pompey and his execution of that ended up making Julius Caesar throw his power and his support behind Cleopatra. And this is the thing that really elevates her to singular rule in Egypt. So do you think Cleopatra's romantic life affected the position of Egypt as a sovereign state. You know, there, there, there are so many stories woven around Cleopatra. Absolutely. And yeah, it's a great question. So I think that, again, so much of our modern understanding of Cleopatra is we have to remember that it's actually based on things that were written about Cleopatra over 100 years after she died. Um, so what we're looking at in order to understand her are a series of Roman historians who were not writing at the same time as she and, uh, and Antony. Uh, and they had a political agenda. Um, and in fact, that particular Roman writer talks about how he doesn't care about historic facts. What he cares about is rumor because he says he thinks that that illustrates the identity of people better. So in other words, what we're literally looking at, when we look at the Roman histories of Cleopatra, we're looking at fake news. Like it's, it's absolutely fake news. And it's also seen through this very different social eye. Rome uh, was a very, very patriarchal society. Uh, it was absolutely frowned upon for women to be in power. You know, the, there were issues of uh, sexuality tied with ideas of morality and status in a way that just simply didn't exist in Egypt. It's not that, you know, it, again, it, that's, that, that triggers us and makes us think that therefore the Egyptians had no morals. It's just they had a different type of morality when it came to sex and sexuality. And so what they're doing is they're judging her by their own standards and they need to delegitimate her. They need to cast her in, negative, in the most negative light possible. And so that, as since the Egyptian language died out, Latin survives as the language of Christian worship. And so that's the only voice that we had in history until, you know, we really started to be able to understand and, and translate ancient Egyptian in a more sophisticated uh, uh, way. And so it's really only just now that we're starting to kind of put together our understanding of Cleopatra. And this is a very long way to get to answering your actual question, which is, did these romantic relationships have any relationship to her rule? Um, yes and no, right? They're both um, because the idea of um, what we think of as any, any woman who has a romantic or sexual relationship with a man, if they are in power, we automatically in, uh, judge them because of that. 
And so we have an, an assumption that she must have been manipulative, manipulative or something like this. But we must also remember that Cleopatra probably died sometime in her 40s. And according to all sources, she only had two romantic relationships in her life. One was Julius Caesar and the other was Mark Antony. And she only got together with Mark Antony after Julius Caesar died. There's no indication that she ever had any other relationships at all. And Cleopatra understood those relationships with both of those men as marriages. Mm -hmm. She didn't think of them as extramarital affairs. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, she didn't think of herself as being, uh, you know, cheating on anyone, so to speak, you know, because again, in dynastic marriages, the Ptolemies married everyone, you know, and it was very normal for rulers to have multiple wives. So her, from her perspective, being with these men did not delegitimate or offend their other wives. It was a very different situation from her perspective. And uh, so, although, yes, she did have these relationships with these men, the political relationship with the men existed before those romantic relationships. Um, so she established the situation and the rulership of the establishment of her singular power with Julius Caesar before they got together uh, as a romantic couple. Um, and the same thing with Mark Antony. When Julius Caesar dies, Antony comes to Egypt in order to try to track down Julius Caesar's uh, assassins. But they had already known each other. And Antony was very similar to Julius Caesar in that he sort of um, supported and appreciated Egypt. You know, he didn't want to completely subject it to Roman control. And so politically, she and he were very much on the same, the same kind of uh, thought patterns. And so politically, they already had this political alliance and understanding, and their personal relationship developed after that. So again, for each of these situations, what we're seeing is a sophisticated, intelligent, remarkable woman meeting equally sophisticated, mm -hmm. remarkable men who form a political relationship first, and then that ends up leading into a romantic relationship. And of course, I'm sure that many of the people who are listening to this will understand this, that obviously somebody who shares your social and political views is a good partner. <laughs> and, you know, mm -hmm. it's not only that, but if you're that smart, you want to have somebody who's just as smart as you are, because otherwise they're boring, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> You know, and so you want to have that kind of relationship with someone. Uh, and so one of the things we're constantly told is that Cleopatra was apparently an incredibly exciting conversationalist. Everyone loved mm -hmm. talking to her. And so we could imagine that with Mark Antony and Julius Caesar, they're coming from this Roman environment where women are not educated. They're not as, you know, they're, they're not as sophisticated. They're actually sort of encouraged to not have that level of engagement in the world. And suddenly they meet this remarkable woman who has multiple languages and can speak on their political level and is an incredible uh, political active power insider. That must have been incredibly exciting, you know? And so it was probably her character, not that she looked like Elizabeth Taylor. Exactly, exactly. Well, and in fact, we actually have a lot of indications that she probably wasn't, you know, that she wasn't Elizabeth Taylor, you know, that she was, you know, that she was a normal looking person. And I'm sure that everyone in this, I've had this happen too. I'm sure that everyone has where you've 
you know, you meet somebody and you think, wow, you know, what a good looking person. And then they open their mouths and you're like, yeah. never mind, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very true. You know, Very true. Or, alter, or the other will happen where you meet somebody who maybe they're, you know, maybe not so whatever. And then you get to talk yeah. to them and you're like, you're the most exciting person I've ever met in my life. Right. And so yeah, yeah. looks aren't everything, you know. Exactly. Very true. Okay. So my last question to both of you, Nefertiti and Cleopatra were very iconic and Hatshepsut is famous, but she, she never became as iconic as Nefertiti and Cleopatra. Why do you think that is? It, for, I'll, I'll just jump in really quickly because I have two. So for Cleopatra, the reason that she stayed famous is because Shakespeare used those Roman histories to create his play. And Shakespeare's Cleopatra mm -hmm. play was incredibly popular at the time. And of course it lasted. Mm -hmm. And so this is what created the sort of modern understanding of what of who and what Cleopatra is. And so this idea of this seductive, exotic, uh, temptress, you know, kind of played into a lot of sort of Western, you know, overheated imaginations. And so that's why she survived. And of course, Nefertiti, it's a very similar thing. It plays into these Western ideas because she exploded on the scene with that beautiful bust, right? And so we moderns, well, human beings in general, we love beauty. You know, it's the, it's the thing that in, and our, in our modern day, we associate the value of a woman with the, with the beauty of her face. If her face is beautiful, then therefore she is valued. And uh, so not only is she, was is this iconic bust beautiful, but then, you know, she seems, and I want to emphasize seems, to have such significance in, in Akhenaten's reign that suddenly we kind of start, our imagination explodes. Whereas for Hatshepsut, a lot of her material was kind of fragmented and in pieces, and it's really only just now that we've started to really understand her. Um, and so since she presented herself as a male, um, again, if we're looking to value women for being sexual and pretty and, mm. you know, and, and, you know, a femme fatale, Hatshepsut does not fit that category, you know, because she showed herself as a man uh, and she's, you know, she's very, she very much downplays that part of herself, right? Uh, and so as a result, she doesn't fit with our modern Hollywood understanding of what an exciting woman should be. And I think, I think I could be wrong, but that's why she doesn't trigger that kind of modern fascination. But I'd love to hear what Mariam thinks there. Well, I, I totally agree with you, Jackie, uh, absolutely, uh, on both counts, you know, the, sh the Shakespearean connection and also the beautiful bust of Nefertiti. But on that last point, I think it's not just that her bust was discovered, but all the intrigue surrounding getting the bust out of Egypt yeah, and how cool. now it's in Berlin and, and the makeover that was given her, making her into another version of Joan Crawford or, or something, you know. Oh, you're crowd. right. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. Yes. And, and, and Hitler's I, fascination with her. Yeah, and, and, you know, with Hatshepsut, who is so beautiful, I think in my eyes, she has oh, yeah. the most intriguing smile, the big face of hers from one of those Iranian statues, which is enormous, is in Cairo Museum. It was never taken out. It was never as yeah. sens sensationalized. And also don't forget with Nefertiti, the connection with Tutankhamen, station that came from the discovery of his tomb around the same time. Like it all happened mm -hmm. in the like 20s, right? Right. Mm -hmm. 
So, so there's there was just a lot of publicity associated with that, and um, you know, never estimate the power of the media. With Hatshepsut, it was more low key. It was mostly the Polish expedition, not the German expedition. So there's, you know, factors that you know, because I I think you know, and and checking off of that, so like we have that moment of intense Egyptomania, right, in the twenties and thirties and etc. That like, you know, it was people were having earrings made and you know all of this stuff to and all the art deco stuff you know yeah. nuts too yeah but you know and, and so but we as, as sort of modern scholars shy away from that most of us shy away from that kind of sensationalism of our field you know um you know like mariam and i are just we're just you know cautioning everyone to not you know, read into gaps mm -hmm. in evidence and to try to be a little bit more cautious about stuff like this. But that's not exciting to people, you know, like that's not the kind of no. that, that, you know, makes people dream and get excited. I'm sure that if, you know, maybe if the poll, if the Polish had like, been like, oh, here's this, you know, like, you know, if they had trumpeted maybe uh, had chefs, at, you know, in that more kind of publicity type of you know, 1920s and etc. that it would have been different. Yeah, but there's a reason why they haven't and why Nefertiti received so much attention. Don't forget the power of capitalism and commercialization yeah. and advertising uh, all these finds and, yeah, and, the, yeah. and, the, and the objects. Um, so I think uh, we're veering off into sociopolitical modern history here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> On that note, we should stop. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for sharing your time and knowledge with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much, Yasmin, for having us. We really appreciate it. It was great to have an opportunity to talk to both of you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. You just listened to part two of the Female Pharaohs podcast episode, which concludes our Kingship in Ancient Egypt series. Please visit our website at www.rc.org podcast for more information or contact us at podcast at rc.org. We invite you to catch up on all past episodes of the RC podcast via Apple, Spotify, or Google. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.